Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. All right, so today we are blessed to be speaking with Jim Kerr, who is a good friend of mine, and uh, I met him through a group called Irish Angels. Here, I'm, I'm wearing their their uh, shirt today, and that's uh, that's basically a group of uh, investors with some sort of uh, Notre Dame um, affiliation. Uh, these, by the way, these pullovers, C.J. Ritterbush, Concord Marketing, great company. Um, <laughs> shameless, uh, shameless promo for my my buddy C.J. Uh, anyway, um, what can I tell you about Jim before we get into this? He's a father of twelve kids. Is uh, seven grandkids now? Ten grandkids now. Ten. ten. I'm reading an old bio here. Yeah. <laughs> so ten grandkids. Um, he is a unbelievably busy guy, uh, although you would never know it, but you know what he does? He actually, his passion is high school swimming. He's coached, I believe, eight Virginia State championships for girls swimming. He is, uh, was it, what's yep. that? Girls and boys, yep. Girls and boys, and then he's got six of his kids, I think including his son-in-law, are military officers. This is a guy that you go to if you need something done. You go to the busy people, and this is the guy. So, hey, listen, welcome, Jim. Uh, Joe, you're too kind. So, listen, I, 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 one of the things that I really uh, thought was interesting that happened in the last year or so was that your son became a Catholic priest. Yes, in June, June 8th, ordained yep. in the Diocese of Arlington, and then he's going to, after three years in Arlington, he's going to head to the U.S. Navy and be a Navy chaplain. He was um, Navy ROTC at Notre Dame. Wow, that that's that's great, and I, I know that I listened to your speech and that thing. I I, I love that I shared it on you know my little minor uh, social media. But if anybody can listen to that or find that speech, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, thanks for sharing that with me. Oh, I'm I'm glad it was uh, one of the highlights of my entire life. So, so this is what I want to do. Um, this is going to be a real interesting interview because um, we're going to try and pack a lot of stuff. I think he's a busy guy, but um, I, I really want to understand, and I want our listeners to understand how a guy goes from uh, where you are, we're at the beginning until where you're at now. And so um, I know that you're, you're a very interesting guy uh, as far as your extracurricular activities your education, your upbringing, uh, your unbelievable Catholic faith, uh, all these great things. Um, and you're within an hour of Mount Vernon, uh, where our president was from. Is that right? Yep. Yep. I live out at about 45 miles southwest of D.C. out in the country, a town called Warrington, Virginia. Nice. Okay. So tell, us, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Um, my, um, my parents were both naval officers. 
Um, my mother was uh, the youngest daughter of an Italian immigrant, grew up in a company coal mining town in Iowa, didn't have indoor plumbing until she was 13. Mm -hmm. And through the grace of a Chicago Catholic school, ended up at Marquette as a Navy nurse, met my father, who was also the first one in his family to go to college, uh, uh, only child from St. Louis. And they uh, met in the Navy when my father had his kidney out and they had four boys all a year apart. So I grew up uh, the son of a junior Naval officer, um, watching my parents excel. My father ultimately became the first admiral in the Naval Oceanography Command, uh, first oceanographer scientist admiral in the history of the Navy. But that happened after I was, I was out. Um, me and all my brothers, followed a Navy track. I was Navy ROTC at Notre Dame till I broke my neck in a rugby game. Um, I remember my father telling me when I was in the hospital, he said, son, rugby players are either big or fast. Which are you? <laughs> uh, but that turned out to be a turning point in my life. I had been uh, studying mechanical engineering, nuclear uh, concentration. Because I want, uh, and I got accepted early into the Navy nuclear power program. and was going to be a nuke submariner. I'd spent 13 weeks on a fast attack in the South China Sea back in the summer of 82 when it was cool to be on a fast attack submarine at the height of the Cold War. Um, and that's what I, that was my dream job, be a commanding officer of a fast attack submarine. Um, but I was also in love with this uh, swimmer at Notre Dame, who's been my wife now for 35 years. Uh, and that was a turning point in, in both my life professionally and my life personally. Um, I think, uh, you know, varsity athletes at Notre Dame aren't usually the kind of women that are in my range um, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you get a first round draft pick, but yep, really deserve one. Yeah, and uh, and of course that's been the fundamental. Um, that was the fundamental change in my life that's uh, probably more than anything um, combined with my parents um, have made me who I am. Great. So, um, so did you grow up then in Virginia? Um, mostly Virginia. Um, because my father was an oceanographer and meteorologist, um, he didn't like go to sea a lot. Went to sea once and he had five tours five different jobs where we could live in the same house in Alexandria, Virginia. So I kind of, when people ask me where you're from, I say Alexandria, Virginia, although I was born in California and lived in Mississippi and Norfolk and Southern Maryland, Patuxent River and, you know, all the Navy, Navy haunts, but mostly uh, Northern Virginia, Alexandria, right outside DC. Very close. I used to ride my bike to Mount Vernon. We were talking about Mount Vernon. When we were kids, we'd ride our bike to Mount Vernon, get soft ice cream and ride back to the pool. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. So we were talking before the, the, the cast about um, I'm on my third reading of Washington, uh, you know, George Washington. And uh, sometimes, you know, when we go through different periods of, uh, I guess you say tumult uh, in, in America, I always like to look back to uh, the founders and, uh, you know, look at, and I like to read about George Washington going through those eight years of war uh, away from Mount Vernon and, you know, the crossing, uh, you know, uh, the Delaware and, and Christmas Day and all, you know, all this good stuff that, that, you know, is, is, you know, huge monumental things compared to what we're going through. Yeah, one of my passions is the Civil War. 
Um, and I live about 60% of the casualties in the Civil War happened within two hours of my house right now. Um, so I've been a huge student of the Civil War, been to all the battlefields in this area. I've read tens of thousands of pages on it, on the topic. So I, I, that gives me perspective when we think, you know, it's bad time now, you know, let's rewind to 1860 and 1861 and let's talk about contentious politics. Yeah, did you, did you read uh, Grant's book? Yes, that's how I got introduced to Ron Chernow, which is how I got to George Washington, the book you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. What'd you think of the Grant book? Oh, that, that I, is still the best book he's written, I think. Um, and I've read several of them now, uh, Chernow books. I've, I'm a big fan of American history, but the Grant book, I, he also taught me a lot about Grant that I thought I knew, but didn't. Grant was actually a great president. History remembers him as one of the worst, most corrupt presidents. But I don't think, Chernow certainly doesn't think that's true. And in my reading of Chernow and all the other sources I've read, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that Grant, even though he was a loser in most of his early life, uh, was a great man and a great American. Yeah, yeah. That, that, if you ever want to read a great redemption story, by the time this guy's 40, he's drunk, he's out of the military, he's, you know, he's an alcoholic and, and just sputtering. And then greatness comes upon him when he never steps back as he goes through the Civil War. But you know, what I found interesting about that book, uh, Jim, and I, I know we're kind of going off, but I, I, I like talking <laughs> to really smart people about fun ideas, is both him and Lincoln were married to Southerners. Yes. And so that, you know, take a, talk about your relationship, you know, you, know, Crazy you have with your in-laws. I mean, come on. I mean, it's like, so when Grant had, when he became president, his in-laws were Southern, you know, rebel folk who, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so, so to me, it's, it's messy. You know, American history is messy. I mean, the, the Washington thing, we, you know, we like to lionize him. He was great, but you know, he owned slaves. He had 200 300 slaves and he had them in the white house in philadelphia yeah and, yeah, yeah and it, you know it's it's real i mean so this is very complicated history and it's it's but i last really like about Chernow is he brings the ugly part and the good part and he just says listen this is the history this yeah. is the history yes anyway let's get back to you I, I i this is fascinating to me so so you end up uh a virginia boy and and you apply to notre dame did do you think you had a shot to get in um well, all my friends were, I went to the, the government school, as I call it, in Northern Virginia, and um, the Fairfax County Public Schools, and all my friends were going to New England schools, and um, I knew I didn't want to go to a New England school, um, and, there, and then a bunch of other friends were going to the University of Virginia, which I didn't fully respect till later when I got a degree at Darden, I got a business degree at Darden there. Um, but as a high school kid, you know, it's the intent, it's, you, you make your college decisions based on often irrational things. My father decided we were going out to St. Louis to pick up my grandfather and bring him back for a visit. And he said, do you want to swing by Notre Dame on the way? And not being very, being geographically challenged as a high school student, I didn't realize that South Bend, Indiana is not on the way between Alexandria and St. Louis. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but if you've ever been on Notre Dame's campus in September, which is turns out to not be a typical uh, example of what Notre Dame's campus is like, um, sun shining, flowers everywhere, the nicest people on the planet, um, 
you know, it's basically a museum, not a college campus, uh, and it's impossible not to fall in love with it. Uh, so it turned out to be the only place I applied to, another not very brilliant move on my part. Um, but, uh, but I got in and it was the obvious, obvious place. And that's another thing that's changed my life. Uh, the people I, the people I know from Notre Dame are some of the finest people and still lifelong friends. So you met your wife there most importantly, right? <laughs> most importantly, I'm still very close with all my roommates. We go back to Notre Dame several times a year, uh, for football games and, um, the football game just is incidental to the experience. That's great. So uh, what year did you get out of there? Um, both my wife and I were graduates of the class of 85. And, and uh, that's a great year, by the way. So I got out of University of Portland in 1985, then headed to Notre Dame for the next three years. And so we, our, our past didn't cross till much later. But, but um, you know, you got out in 85. Did you get married? Did you get married then? Yeah, I got married in the spring of my senior year, actually. Uh, nice. Yeah, and then um, and then moved back to Alexandria uh, after I got physically disqualified from the Navy. That didn't happen until I was a, a senior. Had to find a job. Ended up with Arthur Anderson. They um, they had a brilliant recruiting um, strategy on campus. They went to the engineering department and said, "We want top ten percent engineers who don't want to be engineers," and that attracted. A whole slew of people, including me, and ended up uh, working for this Chicago-based company um, in the Washington, D.C. office. Um, and then um, that's how I got into IT uh, and ended up going to work for a client in a small Virginia town called Culpeper. Uh, I was out of town for so long, and I, I think my wife had, we just had our fourth. We were in Richmond, Virginia, and I realized that this Arthur Anderson consulting life wasn't going to be very conducive to having a lot of kids. And right. So I took the job as the IT director. Yeah. And so how long were you in that type of corporate environment? Well, I did that. I did that in um, uh, 1989. And then I moved gradually. Um, the company was fast growing. It was just a brilliant uh, company and a great CEO. And, um, so I became the person who became in charge of whatever the latest company priority was and got, a, got quite an education in the process. Came to VP of quality back when quality and the Malcolm Baldridge Award were big things and strategic planning and all the process re-engineering ultimately ended up in operations um, and ran the, a restroom service called Sanis, S-A-N-I-S, and one of the uniform company divisions, R-U-S, I ultimately got acquired by a company called Cintas that a lot of people have heard of. Sure. And, um, but at that point I realized that we had done, I had accomplished a lot in the corporate world and knew a lot of really good, talented people. So at that point I went out on my own. Um, As you say people. in your biography, not biography, but I, your, I, I did a little research on you, Jimmy, on the outside, you went without a net. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Went, so, went without a net. Um, so. I love it. So listen, a lot of entrepreneurs, I hang out with a lot of entrepreneurs, you're one of them. Um, and certain, there's a certain amount of background you got to have, but there's, there's a certain amount of, I don't guess, I guess you say you welcome risk, you welcome, you know, the, the challenge and you got to be self-motivated. So what was the year that you said, listen, I'm jumping off and, and then 
by, by the way, when did your wife, what's your wife's first name again? Colleen. When did Colleen say, yes, you may jump without a net as well? I remember the day I called my wife Collect from the Pittsburgh airport. This is before cell phones were ubiquitous. And I said, honey, I just quit my corporate VP job. And this was a collect phone call. And I remember vividly, she said, well, you worry about that. Because she was eight months pregnant with our 10th child. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. So you, so you got 10 kids. And then you say, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do Jim Jim Care Inc. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, that I was 39 years old. Um, so I was trying to decide if I, I ultimately had an opportunity with uh, a supplier of mine at San Esfandro Corporation. Could I sell this very, very large national account? Um, and then I teamed up with a couple guys that were direct reports of mine that um, at Sanus and we bought a commercial flooring company in Richmond with one of them. And then another one decided he wanted to be Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, so we teamed up together with the guy we bought the flooring company with, and we started buying apartments in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, both those uh, uh, companies were, I'm still active in with both those guys, Corey Smith and Curtis Leverock, who uh, were a key part of my life in Sanus. Um, and did so much to help make me successful in the corporate world that I'm, I'm pleased to be their business partners still today. What, so what year was that? What year was the big leap? Um, 2000, 2001, 2001. I was wow, that's a, that's a time. 2001 to two, yeah, right before the crash. It was an interesting time though, because I was, I, I was, basically unemployed, but don't recall being stressed. Um, and I decided to do some things that I always wanted to do, but never had the chance. So I ran an Ironman triathlon. I swam across Chesapeake Bay, spent 24 hours with the Navy SEALs. Um, it was this event run by a company called Blackwater before they were cool. Um, and you know, several things like that, that I was inspired by my wife's family to do because my wife's family were all athletes and I wasn't particularly an athlete. Um, <laughs> but if you've run an Ironman triathlon, I, I bow to no man. <laughs> no, that's great. So where, tell me about that Ironman. Where'd you run that at? Um, well, uh, again, being geographically challenged, I forgot that Lake Placid is in the mountains. Um, but it was in New York, which is where my wife's family's from, and a lot of my inspiration to do it um, was through some of her brothers. Um, and so I did it in Lake, Lake Placid, 2.4-mile uh, swim in Mirror Lake, which is very well-named. And I'm, a, I'm a, a swimmer. That's the one sport I can do. Um, and it was just gorgeous. And then I got on the bike, and uh, I was in the top 15%. Uh, time. So it was a very social race for me, I say. I met everybody in the race since everybody in the race passed me during the bike. Um, yeah. But a 112-mile bike in the mountains uh, was about as much as I can handle. Then I got off the bike and had to run a marathon. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> but I was also thinking, I'm not training for this again. So I was 
verbally saying to myself out loud, a gunshot to the head will not stop me now. I'm that is awesome. For this again. <laughs> that is awesome. So, so you end up doing that in 2001? Yep, summer of 2001. Did you do another one? Never. <laughs> <laughs> I still have PTSD from the event. <laughs> I bet. I bet, I, can, I bet you still got the medal or the pictures from it, too. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Hours, so, 15 hours and 20 minutes. I can't even drive 15 hours and 20 minutes. Oh, my gosh. So, so we're looking at about 20 years of being without a net now. So what's the three things you would tell to somebody? It's 2020 now. You know, it's a very scary time for a lot of people. You know, we, I think 20 some million people filed for unemployment uh, last week. Uh, or I don't know even what the numbers are. Um, very scary time in America. Um, what would you tell, like three things you would tell somebody that was that's in somewhat your shoes educated, got a college degree and is in, in what I, I believe is the greatest country in the United States, you know, great in the world, the United States of America. What would you tell them? Um, I don't have a silver bullet, but there's three things that I commonly tell people. The first one is uh, I have 10 rules that I try to follow. And rule one is make other people successful. Um, and I've always found that Successful people surround themselves with successful people. And the reason is because successful people are making each other successful. So that if I worry about the success of the people around me, somewhat paradoxically, that turns out to be the fastest way for me to get, be successful myself. Um, and that's always been a good rule, not just because I largely make my living in sales and that's the best way to sell. Um, that is more a retro, retrospective um, look look at it. It's just the way it's always been. Um, the second one is a rule my- I'm writing these down, by the way, Jimmy. Yeah. The second one, I, I, and I've heard it many times from many places before or since, but the first time I heard it was from my father um, because he credited his success in the Navy with the attitude of bloom where you're planted. Um, he was a, uh, I remember as a young adult listening to his uh, speech when change of command speech. And he, he said his, when he was a young officer, he was a meteorologist and he had to forecast weather, uh, the difference between sleet, freezing rain and snow in Argentia, Newfoundland, Canada. And apparently that matters if you're flying a P3 on the North Atlantic looking for submarine lanes. Um, and that was not a coveted role, but everywhere he went, he decided that he would be the best he could be at that job. And I took that attitude. And as a result, I haven't had a job interview since I was in college. Um, and I credit it to that because if you are really excellent or work as hard as you can to be excellent at everything you do, then people find you. People, and if your, your attitude is that you're gonna make them successful, and people want you. Right. And those are the kind of people you want around you. Um, the third thing I'd, I'd say is that don't forget the importance of a life of service. Um, I have made countless, and this again was not the purpose I set out for, but it's the, the undeniable fact that a 
a life of service has led to so many business opportunities for me. Um, I remember Dale Carnegie once said, if you want to make a friend for life, do something great for his kid. And as a high school swimming coach for years, I've coached almost 500 separate kids and made lifelong friendships with their parents, in part because I was working with their children. Uh, and I, I know what I think of people when they do something nice for my children. I'll never, never, ever forget them. No, I get it. So uh, make people successful, be excellent at everything that you do, and live a life of service. Those are three good things, right? Yeah, bloom where you're planted is how my father said the uh, second one. Bloom where you're planted. That's pretty good. Which I, I've, seen, I've seen other places since, but uh, definitely the first place I heard it was, was from him. And uh, no matter what you're doing, just, just be great at it. Okay. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about, first of all, you, you ended up with 12 kids, right? Mm -hmm. So there's not many people that, I mean, I'm, I'm one of 10. Okay. So um, there's not many people nowadays in 2020 that have a dozen kids. Tell us a little bit about uh, those decisions that you, that you and your wife made with respect to, to that. Um, well, my wife is um, very principled, focused, talented person. She's got two degrees from the University of Notre Dame. So she could, she could have chosen any vocation, um, but she felt called to be a mother. And, and I think in her mind, if you're gonna be a mother, you might as well be a mother. Or as her brothers call her, the biggest mother of them all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I promise you, if she could still have kids, uh, now she would. That's and, great. And then, so you've got 10 grandkids now? 10 grandkids. Um, one of my, uh, with only three in the game. One of my daughters has six, one has three, and uh, a son that's in flight school down in Pensacola just had one. That's great. That's great. So then, um, <clears throat> tell, tell us where you've, I think one thing that will be interesting to, to listeners is, is this whole COVID-19 thing that hit and that you happen to be one of the biggest sellers of toilet paper. <laughs> Give yeah. us a little bit of background on that. Um, well, because uh, I, I ran a restroom service called Sanus, um, that's how I got into the bathroom. Um, <laughs> that, that's a good example of Bloom Where You're Planted, by the way. I talked to a lot of younger kids and they're, they want to do something glamorous, you know, they want to do cybersecurity sure. or web yeah. design or something. I said, dude, man, I was in the bathroom. That's what <laughs> I that. Um, and uh, I've been selling toilet paper and paper towel for a North Carolina-based company, Vondrell, since, since then. Um, and uh, th this COVID thing, it's, it's been like, uh, the way I describe it, it's, it's like too much chocolate. Uh, it, tastes really good, but if you eat too much of it, you get sick. Uh, it, the demand has been insane. Um, we had a week where the demand from my largest customer was 195% of normal. Well, that's very disruptive to the supply chain. I bet it is. How did you deal with that? <clears throat> um, well, it was, it was tense for the whole company all the way down to the supply chain. The company's trying to fill orders from everybody who's 
who's got that kind of shock to, to their supply chain and we're at the end of it. And we're trying to do things like find recycled fiber because recycled fiber, we, all our stuff is recycled, comes from like office waste. But if no one's working in the offices, there's not office waste. Um, sure. There's, um, it, you know, so that it's getting corrugate boxes. That, that stuff doesn't happen overnight. Um, so, uh, and now you can actually see it, the opposite's happening. Um, and it's reverting to the mean, but to revert to the mean, it's got to go below the mean first. Um, so the demand now uh, for everything except what we call single wrap tissue, the stuff you can use in the household. So like this very morning, people are scrambling and we're using industrial away from home, we call it, um, is the half of the market, the stuff you use away from home, that's what I sell, um, for at-home applications now. Wow. Um, and, you know, we just sold, I just sold 13 truckloads five minutes before I got on this call with you. People wow. The backlog for that stuff is crazy. So were, were, was your cell phone blowing up? To, hey, where, I want my toilet paper. Yeah. In fact, I've had two calls since we've been talking about this, this uh, new product that uh, we invented at Vondrell, um, where we can use uh, industrial machinery to produce something that can be used at home. <laughs> so wow. It's, it, it's been insanity. Um, the only explanation I have for the at-home part is if people are at home, then they're using a bathroom at home. So the usage at home probably did actually go up quite a bit. Sure. And that's why people wanted so much of it. But uh, listen, I want to talk to you about a little bit about um, how we met. So we met through this group called Irish Angels, which you were one of the first people involved in that. And um, why don't you tell the listeners what that is? The Irish Angels is a group, it, it, um, a group of Notre Dame um, entrepreneur-minded um, investors who banded together. Uh, initially, it was sort of a club. It had a social component and a service component. Um, in about 2013, the, it split off into a more professional organization with professional management. Um, and became what we currently know as the Irish Angels, which is essentially a small venture capital firm, not even that small. Um, there's about 235 members, I think, all affiliated directly with Notre Dame, um, a professional director in office space. I think there's nine full-time people, even employees there. Um, I don't know how many millions we've deployed. I think it's north of 20 million. Uh, might That's be great. I think we deployed 8 million last year. Um, and you know, I, I, age tech companies. Right. I got involved in uh, 2015 uh, through my buddy, CJ, uh, Concord Marketing. And, uh, and he asked me to come in like a couple times. And I said, what, you know, what is this thing? And then I ended up getting in because I met guys like you and it's been a lot of fun. I get to meet people from throughout the country, but uh, really neat how, you, you know, you, you have your own uh, venture capital group called Soren, right? Yeah. Well, just to organize my investing I created um, as an independent study project when I was at Darden, actually, I wanted to learn how private equity and venture capital work. So I did an independent study project and created a company called Soren Capital Funds named after Soren Hall, which is named after the founder of Notre Dame, Father Edward Soren. And, and then I created some funds for me and my friends and just, you know, to duplicate my effort, some friends put some money in these funds 
and that's the way I organize my investing activities now through through Soren Capital Funds. Tell us what you th where you think this is kind of a scary time for a lot of people. I mean, that stock market went up and down, and it's all crazy. And you know, today it's up, yesterday it's down. Where do you see uh, the economy going? I know that you don't have a crystal ball, and but I, just just from your 20 years of experience without a net, you're, uh, you, you've been there. You've been in the corporate world. You've been in the, you know, the private equity field. You've been in venture capital. Where do you see this going, and what do you think young people, where do you, where do you think young people fit into this? Um, that's a couple different questions. First of all, I'll say whenever there's a major dislocation in the economy, there's huge opportunity created for somebody. Um, and so what we need to concentrate on is where's the opportunity going to be created. So for instance, um, you and I are involved in a vending technology company. And obviously touchless technologies are going to get a boost from this. There's an opportunity there. Um, you know, what's going to happen with uh, restaurants? I suppose that um, people will probably do more carryout, but overall restaurants aren't going away. And when this started, there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy. So I see this overall as a temporary problem. Now it's going to have some permanent implications to the way we work. A lot more people are familiar with Zoom, so there's going to be a lot less travel to meetings. Maybe not a lot less because people like you and I, we still like to do business looking each other in the eye. You know, the, sure. what we're doing right now is not the same. Exactly. Um, but younger people already won't even talk to you on the phone, a lot of them. You know, they want to text and people I sell to that are younger, they don't want to have a phone conversation. So this might, this might which is amazing to me, but it's yes. just the way it is. So you, you adapt. Um, this is going to push that. And more and more, it's going to be harder and harder to get face-to-face -face meetings and do business based on personal relationships, um, which I think is going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to operate in my world based on personal relationships, and hopefully I can still operate that way. Um, but I think that might be one of the long-term implications that business is going to get more transactional. Um, yeah, it seems to me that there's going to be um, more of this that we're doing right now. Um, and uh, whoever can design a more intimate technological experience, I yeah. think is going to be, a, is, is, and that, that's kind of an opening. You know, one of the thing, one of the businesses that you and I are involved in that I, I find extremely fascinating is that, that restaurant uh, group. I don't know if we can mention their name or if you want to, but, but I think that they, the, that company uh, before this hit was like one of the up and coming companies in America. I, I love the company. It, um, it, it's margin edge and it's still, it's still, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. Yeah, I, and I, I think, you know, I do. I think that, you know, that we're going to see some some folks, I don't know whether it's going to be 20%, 30% of restaurants just going to give the keys to the commercial real estate folks. And then two thirds of them are just going to keep going and get stronger and better. Um, you know, for example, you talk about opportunities. I mean, do you think BP and Exxon and all those guys are, 
are really bumming about this whole thing? Absolutely not, because every small guy that doesn't have a balance sheet that can deal with this, they're, they're going to pick up all their properties. Yeah, yeah, and then in, in oil and gas industry is not going away. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I, somebody told me, my, I was talking to my accountant yesterday, Jimmy, and he told me that he had a client in Atlanta. They had to go to a, a funeral in Boston, she got on the plane. She was the only person on the plane. <laughs> yeah, I was still flying in March and was experiencing a rose to myself. It was nice. And I, I was, I, 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 and I was, how are those guys going to make it? I, I, I wonder why you'd want to own an airline to begin with, because I don't think the margins are great. I don't think that there's, I mean, talk about the headaches of dealing with it all. You know, is there going to be a big change in that? I don't know. Yeah, I I, I hope not. Um, although traveling through airports is, uh, if I did that a little bit less, that would make me happy. Yeah, I, I think maybe the private planes. That's gonna that's gonna be the big boon in this is that people aren't gonna want to you know fly and they're gonna want to try and find a way to make it more palatable to to fly you know a private plane somehow. Yeah, I, I don't know if private planes are accessible for you and I. It's a very, you know, it's a tough, tough one, tough one. But I mean, if they, they become Uber, that'd be a great thing. Yes. So, so listen, I, I wanted to, one, fa one fun thing I like to talk to people about before we get going is, uh, can you tell the listeners some of your first jobs that kind of give you some life lessons? Yeah. Um, when I was, um, a kid, I grew up in a neighborhood uh, with quarter acre lots, lots of junior military officers, the kind of neighborhood where they had a park in the middle and your mother told you to come home when the street light came on. You've heard that. Yeah, yeah I, I live that. But it was a suburban neighborhood, not city. Um, and it's the kind of neighborhood where you could go down the hill, we called it. The main road was Stony Brook Lane and went down a big hill. And you knew every house. You knew who lived in every house. And so I started mowing lawns. Um, and I got to 14 lawns a week as like a 12-year-old. Um, and it was, and I charged $5 a lawn and a dollar extra to trim. Uh, and it was a great, great business, except when you, until you had a string of rainy days and you get backed up. Uh, right. But I remember that was kind of my first uh, business as it were um another kind of formational job for me i worked for moving companies i remember i went down to down van doren street outside alexandria and there's a bunch of moving companies i walked in the front door i didn't know how to get a job in a moving company so i walked in the front door and asked to see the president and i sat in his office and i don't think anyone who ever worked for a household north american or allied agent ever walked in the front door and asked to see the president but um, they gave me a job. So I'm working, going in the warehouse. And I still remember this job because I own a commercial flooring company now. When I go down there, we have this big warehouse and office. And I'm in the office. And every time I walk back to the warehouse, I can picture myself in Victory Van uh, off uh, Van Doren Street in Alexandria, Virginia, thinking I, I'm not allowed to go in the office. The office is not accessible to me. I am the guy who moves the furniture um, and gets yelled at by ladies because I'm sweating on her chair, even though it's 100 degrees. 
Um, and so it, it, that gave me real perspective, not just about hard work, because if you want to you want to have a hard day, you load up a 25,000 pound house of furniture on a 100 degree day. Oh, pack yeah. Pack moving van. But that kept you in school. About the guys I was working with. Yeah. And, and those guys work in my flooring company now. Um, and so uh, I, I always feel, I get a rush of gratitude actually, that I can be in the office, in the air conditioning. Sure. And I feel uh, fortunate that my education and my life has allowed me to be in that position. So I try, I try to remember that. And then if, if you could give us, uh, I know you, you gave us the, uh, the three um, successful stuff, but is there any like, like daily habits that you do that, or that, that of your lifestyle that, that have made it that you, makes you somewhat productive to be able to do all the things you need to do in a day? Um, I am, I work at home and I have a, um, a well tricked out home office and that, that, so being organized in that kind of environment gives me a place to be very productive. Um, I'd like to say that I pray every day. Um, I, but I can't say I pray every day. I uh, have got turned on to this uh, Catholic meditation app called Hallow, um, which, is, uh, which is very, very, uh, it's, it's a wonderful app. It's actually an Irish angel investment, which is how I got introduced to it. And then I found out from my son, uh, Father Sean Kerr, um, that he, it's actually a popular app uh, in his world too. That's great. So, and then another thing I've been trying to do, my brother-in-law encouraged me, uh, since running is so difficult for me. Uh, and I love to hike, I love to be in the woods. So I go for a fairly significant hike several times a week now. Uh, oh, that's great. And then you're, and then you're coaching, you, 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 that's gonna be a, kind of a bummer that that's been, that's been postponed, huh? Well, and, and it's missed the high school season. Um, I coach from election day to the third weekend in February every year. That's okay. basically the high school season. And so the state championship meet had just ended uh, when this picked up. So we got the full, we got the full season in, won the conference again. No, that's great. How many years in a row for the conference? Um, the girls have, my, our girls at Seton have won uh, 25 years in a row. And the boys. What's the name of the high school? Seton School. It's in Manassas, Virginia. It's a Catholic, independent Catholic high school. Little small school, 350 kids, grades 7 through 12. I taught, I taught um, math there for nine years. All my kids have gone there. You know that, so uh, want to tell the listeners who that's named after? Elizabeth Ann Seton? Yes. And a lot of people don't know who that is. First American Saint. Educator and basically, I, I would I think the founder of basically the the Catholic school system in America, right? I don't. That would be believable. I'm not sure if that's. I know she was an early Catholic educator from a yep. family in Baltimore. Um, but uh, I I. So that's probably true. Yeah, I I I think it is loosely true, but. Um, you know, uh, I, I love that, that that part of us. And then to, just to close us out, what's that? We'll give her credit. 
We'll do. You know what? She deserves it. So, I mean, and, you know, kept the high school. We have, we have a uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton parish, you know, not three miles from my house, which uh, is a great parish, um, but they're, they're all over the country. But um, listen, I, I really want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jimmy. And I, I, as time goes on, I, I think we're going to need your perspective again. And, I, and I'm, I want to steal some of your time down the road. So put me on your calendar every now and then, because I think, this is refreshing to hear somebody that's so bullish and optimistic right now at the time when a lot of people are kind of dealing with some tough times. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be fine. Um, we're we're going to be fine. You just got to find the opportunity. Find the opportunity. That's awesome. Survive now and find the opportunity later. All right, buddy. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you, and we will catch up with you again. Thanks, Joe. See you next time I'm in Chicago. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.